You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Find Your Voice. My name is Zoe Daniel. I'm the member for Goldstein in Victoria, and this is a podcast that we started ahead of the 2022 federal election to discuss policy issues affecting Goldstein and Australia more broadly, and we are still going. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past present and emerging on unceded Aboriginal land at the beginning of a very important year and important conversation about the voice and recognition of our First Nations people in our constitution. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing home energy and how we can make our households more efficient and also reduce our emissions. My guest today is Tim Forsey, an engineer who advises households on what can to improve home comfort and energy use, as well as reduce our energy bills. Tim's helped over 1,000 Melbourne homes decide what they can do, in what order and what priority. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. No worries. Now, you're a chemical engineer and energy researcher in the oil, gas and electricity industry for many years before turning your interest to home energy improvement and making that a full-time career. Can you tell us how that came about and what drove your interest in that area? Yeah, I uh, trained as a chemical engineer and worked in America in the petrochemical industries and um, had a chance to come out to Melbourne to work temporarily in the petrochemical industries here. But uh, my wife and I liked Melbourne so much, we decided to uh, permanently come on down. And uh, with BHP, I was able to, to migrate. And so I worked another 15 years with BHP uh, and with crowds like uh, ESSO with the Bass Strait Joint Venture, which is where I've, a lot of the oil and gas uh, has traditionally been been produced. Um, uh, but uh, then I, I became a bit climate aware, you know, as time went by. So in about 2008, by then I'd been trained by Al Gore on, uh, you know, some of the things that were going on. And I stayed in BHP. And as you do, you try to influence inside a corporation to, to do better. But eventually, I just couldn't share the enthusiasm with my management uh, as they were interested in getting fossil fuels out of the ground ever faster. So I left that. I had a bit of a stint also with the Australian Energy Market Operator to learn more about electricity and renewables. And then I had an opportunity at Melbourne Uni to do some uh, different research projects, even like pumped hydro or looking at the electricity system. But we did some home economics and we worked out that uh, people in Victoria, Melbourne, across Australia, the cheapest way for them to heat their home often is to be using reverse cycle air conditioners. And uh, it was a big difference. So even this was about eight years ago, we worked out that people could heat their homes with air conditioners for a third the cost of using gas heating. And this was kind of amazing. We were the first ones to work that out. And it was um, not something that a lot of people have heard. So we released that information about eight years ago. And uh, all along, I had been very interested in home energy, you know, how much energy you use in the home. Uh, always try to want to be efficient. If I go back when I was a kid in the 1970s in America, there were energy crises and we were wrapping our hot water systems with uh, insulation back then. And my folks were installing triple glazed windows in the 1970s, something that's still still pretty rare here in Australia. And then I trained in industry and we were always interested in being efficient in industry because that's one way to try to make money. Um, but we did a lot in the homes, in homes that I've, I might have uh, rented or 
purchased. And um, in about that 2006, 7, 8 period, uh, we started the Bayside Climate Change Action Group right here in Bayside. And one of the early programs working with the Bayside Council and like our guru, Alan Pears from RMIT, uh, even then we started on a volunteer basis, helping people to improve their homes. And it's just gone on since then. I've worked with various not-profits. And these days I have my own business where I can go into people's homes and uh, come up with improvement suggestions to improve their comfort, reduce their energy bills, get off gas, that sort of thing. Hmm. There's a lot to unpack there. Before we get to the nitty-gritty of the household transition, last year after the election, the government introduced a climate change bill that legislated 43% emissions reduction by 2030, net zero by 2050. I stated at the time that this was a good first step, but it wasn't enough. And I did move a successful amendment to ensure the 43% is a floor, not a ceiling. I'm interested just in your thoughts on that policy as we aim to hit net zero by 2050. Thoughts on policy? Gee, I've kind of left the the policy space to a large extent. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fully aware of the climate emergency. I mean, there's far too much greenhouse gas in the atmosphere already. Uh, opening up new coal and gas mines is a really, really stupid thing to do. And uh, yeah, just getting our emissions down as fast as possible is what we we must do. And I guess I've tended to focus in a pretty easy area, and that is in our homes, if there's cheaper things that we should be doing already that save us money that just happen to also reduce emissions, well, then these are also no-brainers. So I've kind of picked these days a pretty safe no-brainer space um, mm-hmm. where it's pretty easy to get people on board to make the changes once you have just the, the tiniest amount of time to talk about it. Uh, I guess I'm still active um, on the, you know, the Victoria state state situation because no, no place uses more gas in their homes than Victoria. And I've even done a home energy consult with uh, the state energy minister, uh, Lily D'Ambrosio. So she's fully aware of this. And uh, the the state government did publish a so-called gas substitution roadmap, but it wasn't really much of a roadmap for how we get off gas. It was more of a it was more of like a a travel agency brochure. It was like we we should go somewhere, but it didn't really say how we would get there. Uh, But That was before the last state election and uh, a lot more needs to be done. I guess I do contribute a bit on the state policy space in terms of what we should be doing to uh, uh, accelerate the pace at which we get to homes off gas. Yeah, look, if there was one thing that I picked up during my election campaign, and there were a lot of things that I picked up, to be fair, but one thing that stood out was that on this issue, members of our community really want to do something, but they're kind of paralysed by not knowing what to do or how to do it or potentially the costs behind that. So let's just take a look at what steps you can take, and particularly in the context of lots of cost of living pressures at the moment, you know, often the response that you get when you talk about home electrification is, oh, well, it's going to cost me money to switch off gas onto a heat pump or, as you've described them, air conditioning units to heat the house and, and those sorts of things. When you you begin interacting with people about how to make the house more efficient, what's your starting point? I, I guess uh, the clients that I have recently in the last few years, they, they probably have some some money to spend because they're, you know, maybe they're heading into retirement and they want to do some future proofing and they have some money or maybe they just bought a, 
they, they might have just moved into a new place. And even the younger crowd, they may not have money to spend, but the you know it means they'll stick some some more money on the mortgage if there's if there is money to be spent. But uh, sometimes you don't have to spend any money. I know the gas industry does like to jump very quickly to how much of this will cost. But uh, as I said at the beginning, the cheapest way to heat your home is with a reverse cycle air conditioner by like a factor of three compared to gas heating. And people across the, you know, Victoria, across the electorate still have not heard this. Um, So this is like the lowest hanging fruit ever, because what it involves is is pushing a button Uh, next winter or as we head into autumn. And the first time it's seeing a little bit chilly. If you have a reverse cycle air conditioner, well, for the first time ever, try it for heating and, uh, you know, take my word for it. It's going to be the cheapest way to heat the place and see how long you can go into winter without turning on that gas heating. So that has a uh, an economic return return of instantly, or it might take away uh, it might take a day to pay back the batteries you had to get to stick into the remote control to get it working again because you haven't looked at your air conditioner since summer. But that's the lowest hanging fruit. The easiest thing that doesn't really cost anything is use the air conditioner you already have, uh, and that's what we did. We're we're in an old weatherboard here in Sandringham that's been renovated many times. But uh, it was about eight years ago. You know, we finally decided to get those air conditioners. Now a lot of people. Have, uh, stayed away from air air conditioners, eschewed them, thinking they were the devil, that we shouldn't have an air conditioner, we should just suffer all summer long. And I'm fine if people don't use air conditioners in summer, don't use it if you don't want to. But keep in mind, it is the cheapest way to heat. So we we brought a couple split systems into our house in summer, used them for some cooling. But then next winter, we started to use them as our main and, and eventually only source of heat. So there's a lot of people out there buying air conditioners every day, and so uh, a key thing is to get the message to them that they can really seriously reduce their gas use by a lot because heating is the biggest use of gas in, in most homes um, and uh, and save some money as well by using their air conditioners. But, yeah, then we can get on to talking about the, the hot water, the cooking. Those are the other places where people use gas and uh, and whether, um, you know, you're going to have to spend some money or how much money that might be. But um, but the, ga- the gas industry is really helping us out here quite a bit recently. They've sent letters to their customers recently saying that, you know, homes that use gas, particularly for heating, they're, they're going to be up for an extra thousand dollars to spend this year because of the increased gas prices. So um, we've never had more interest in this topic. Uh, and uh, thanks to um, thanks to the, you know, the high, the high price of gas. Yeah. Interesting that you say that you're in a, an old house in Sandy. It so happens that I live in an 1890. 1890- Victorian house in Hampton and have been grappling personally with this this issue, how to do it, the cost of doing it, the logistics. Talk to me about drafts uh, because I can tell you uh, an 1890 Victorian house uh, in the context of the one that I live in has a lot of gaps. (laughs) Um, Is that something that people can address that will make a difference to their energy bills? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and so you've done a good job there. You've hit like, you know, the next thing that should be talked about because <laughs> it is the lowest hanging fruit, these these drafts. And our homes are, you know, the particularly the older homes, the older you go, you're just going to find chimneys all over the place and wall vents and cracks here and there. And our homes are tremendously leaky. So, you know, in the old days, you know, gas was cheap and the gas industry was keen for you to waste it as much as possible because the real prize down at Bass Strait was oil. They really wanted to produce oil and gas was just getting in the way. And so that's how the gas industry got got started in Victoria, sending it out to all the homes and industries here. Take it, burn it, waste it. We don't care. Just get it out of the way. It's in the in the way of our oil production. 
Um, but we see a lot of homes now that are still on that legacy, you know, from like the 70s or 80s where, you know, when gas was cheap and um, and people would burn a lot of it. Now, we can't afford to do that anymore. And so we need to re reduce the drafts. Now, this can be done sort of scientifically. Um, uh, people do measure the draftiness of homes uh, using a method called the blower door test. And I'm not saying people need to do this, but in a drafty house, that home, uh, that test might show that um, uh, on a windy day, the air is being turned over in that house uh, every minute, every minute. So they call that in the industry, uh, 60 air changes per hour. So every minute, basically on windy conditions, all the air is leaving your house. And how are you meant to have lower energy bills in that situation? So um, there, there's a lot of information available online and out there where you could hire a professional to uh, advise you as to the good ways to be starting to seal your house up and to get down from those 60 air changes per hour where the air is leaving your home every minute. Now, we're in this old weather board and, um, you know, 20 years of draft proofing. Look, I could have done it faster than that. But anyway, you always find another crack somewhere or you see some ants coming in and that's a bit of a giveaway. There's a bit more draft proofing to be done. But in this old house, we eventually did have a blower door test done and we scored six air changes per hour. So so I would say, Zoe, my house is 10 times better than yours probably right now with respect to the drafts. And then there are people out there building homes to the so-called German passive house standard, which we don't have to do here in Australia. But just to tell you how good it is, um, those houses are built basically with two wraps or two plastic bags around the house and they can get down to 0.6. So that's another factor of 10 difference in the leakiness. But then you're living in a plastic bag and you do need to uh, focus a lot on managing moisture, et cetera. And we don't need to go that far because our energy bills are not like they are in Germany right at the moment. I, I can see why they do passive house in Germany where they get ice and snow. But in Melbourne, you, Victoria, you don't need to quite go that far. But anyway, that gives you an idea that there, there are homes in the world that um, what is that 100 times better than, than your house is right now. But uh, we mm. can make our home 10 times better quite easily. Mm. Uh, there are a few more questions I want to ask you about the economics of this, but before I do, I want to go to induction cooking. Um, you know, this is kind of a, a debate among the cooks of the world, uh, whether induction cooking can compare to, to gas. And there was an interesting article floating around recently where Danny Valent, who's a food critic and a sort of hospitality guru, Danny's a friend of mine, did a comparison between induction cooking and gas, and, and she came down quite positively on the side of induction. The other interesting thing about this piece was that she had actually used a portable induction cooker, which people can, can buy quite inexpensively if they want to have the option of not using gas. But, you know, just talk to me about the advances in induction cooking and, and how the, the modern world of induction compares to a gas cooktop. Yeah, sure. And uh, and I should say at the beginning that cooking doesn't use that much energy compared to your hot water for your house or compared to the heating for sure. But um, yeah, it can be the third thing that people need to uh, electrify so that they can then, you know, uh, stop getting a gas bill and basically have the gas meter hauled away. And um, so no more gas bill, no, no more paying $300 a year just to be connected to to the gas grid. If the only thing you're using gas for in your house is cooking, you're going to be getting this still large gas bill and you're going to see it's for hardly any gas. And uh, those are the connection charges. So, of course, the big prize at the end for people who can fully electrify their homes is that they no longer have to get that gas bill. But, uh, yeah, the induction, look, it's not as good as gas. It's better than gas. 
Um, you know, my grandmother cooked over coal. And uh, look, uh, kids are going to look back and say, my grandmother used to cook over gas. She had an actual flame in the kitchen. Um, induction is fantastic. It's extremely fast. Uh, you know, you, you push the button. It's, it's digital. It's electronic. And we're used, we're used to a lot of digital electronic things these days. You push a button, you expect something to happen. That's exactly what happens with induction. The water starts to boil in the pot immediately. So how can you get any better than that? And, and sure, it does take a while to realize that, you know, a little bit up with the gas burner. Well, on your induction, that's 12, you know, or it's or it's six. <laughs> so, so it's digital and you got to figure out um, what all those different settings mean and, and what level of heat that's giving you. But an example the other day, I'm, I'm not a great cook, but we have the induction now. It was the last thing that we changed in our house. and It took us a while to get there, um, but we have the induction now. I was making a soup and I put a put a big couple of handfuls of kale into the soup, but I put in too much and the kale spilled down the side of the bowl. In gas, that's a bit of a disaster because now you got kale down there within your burner and it's, you know, uh, it's going to be hard to retrieve and you probably got to stop the whole process and shut it off and retrieve the kale and start over because I'm a pretty stupid cook. But with induction, you just grab the kale and you put it back into the pot because there's beside the pot, it's not even hot. Uh, the heat is the pot. And uh, and beyond that, you don't have to worry about flames or toxic gases or any of those things. So um so uh, induction, you know, it's safer. Uh, recent studies have linked like 12% of childhood asthma to the pollutants coming off of gas cooking. So if you've got kids or any sort of uh, air quality concerns, get off the gas cooking. But getting back to the, you know, the cooking skills. Well, my wife's a bit of a gourmet. She she likes the induction. That's fine. Um, yeah, it takes a, it takes a little bit of getting used to. But, you know, we're just, you know, you go to the, the, the kitchen uh, you go to the home shows and you look at the display kitchens they have. They're not featuring gas cooktops because they look kind of grisly and something from like the mid medieval period. So um, if they're trying to show off their cabinets, they're they're going to have a mock up with an induction cook up cooked up there because they they look good. They're easy to clean. And so there's all those benefits as well. Hmm. I want to ask about renters um, and how renters fit into to this conversation. And certainly I think this is something that the Parliament's grappling with uh, around how to provide incentives for landlords to switch over appliances to add rooftop solar and those sorts of things so that, you know, potentially those who most need the savings from electrification can access that if they're renting. Do you have any thoughts about that space? Um, I know that, yeah, so, so renters comes up as a topic quite often. And, and by the way, I haven't yet put in a plug for my Facebook group that I started eight years ago. My Efficient Electric Home is a, uh, a group on Facebook. Uh, we've got 76,000 members with 1,000 members coming in a, a week now. It's it's a bit crazy. And, I, and, I, and uh, I think it is this cost of living thing that we're seeing growth at that group like never before. And of course, there's renters in that group. And so we talk about what renters can do. Uh, there is a fellow in Canberra, Joel Dignam. He's in the group. Everybody's in the group, you know, that works in this space these days. Um, but he is the head of Better Renting. And so there are other authorities out there better than me. Um, you know, let's just start. There are some things that renters can do if you're there right now thinking about, you know, big gas bills for next winter. Heat with your air conditioner. So there will be a lot of rental places, again, where there's, there is a, an air conditioner now these days. And um, but yet a lot of people will will think uh, reflexively that they should use the gas heating come winter. So 
So you can save a lot by using your air conditioner in a rental, should you have one, but also uh, keep the filter clean. Um, and that goes for whether you've got a gas heater or a an air conditioner, but um, there's filters in these things that blow air around and they're not going to work very well if you don't keep them clean. So again, that can be a thing that a that a renter can do DIY if they uh, they watch the videos. Uh, some of the draft proofing stuff can probably be done DIY. A, a landlord's not going to uh, complain too much about that. And we find things like come winter, um, people do things like bubble wrap windows. So if you've got like a child's bedroom where the windows are just desperately cold and there's not much to see out there anyway, bubble wrap is a very effective way to basically get the uh, the double glazing happening. Um, still let some light through. So so that's good. So those are individual actions that that uh, renters can take. But now if you want to go into the policy spaces to what policies we need so that we get the action you know, happening just as much in the rental space as um, with uh, people that own their homes. Again, I may not be exactly the, the best person. Something probably tough pop into my head, but um, but I, um, yeah, uh, sorry, a little bit vague on that at the moment, just right this second. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, so uh, just to close, I think there's a, a bigger picture question here, which is around capacity of the grid for renewables and therefore that being a break on rooftop solar because of export energy into the grid and we have this push for community batteries for example to take some of that excess off so it can be used by community at peak times in the evening that's certainly something as you know that we're working on in in sandy but you know how how much of a a potential problem is that if we all move to all electric appliances, electric heating, electric cars, and we're all using the electricity grid rather than having that fallback on gas, do you see that the pace of building the renewable energy capacity and the rewiring of the grid that's happening federally at the moment will be able to keep up with the I guess the social license that's being created around electrification and people's desire to step into this at a household level. Yeah, it's, it certainly needs a heck of a lot of attention. And I mentioned I did have a couple of years working with the Australian energy market operator, and they're a lot more progressive now studying these issues than, than when I worked there a few years ago. Um, uh, sure, anybody that does a study about uh, electrifying our, our systems, getting off fossil fuels will say we're going to need two or three or um, you know, even more uh, times as much electricity in the future um, to do these things. And, you know, we, we can even have uh, export industries that uh, are, are based on value adding, but they'll use electricity. And so we're going to need a lot more electricity. And that's not going to be a bad thing because this this is a way to create products that the world needs that use no fossil fuels. But just focusing in, in on Victoria for, you know, the next decade or whatever, at present, the peak electricity use for Victoria, well, the last peak was occurred, I think, like uh, back in 2009, even around the time of the of those uh, Black Saturday bushfires. That's when we last uh, saw the electricity demand in Victoria peak. So we haven't been back up to those summer peaks uh, since. Um, but there is a, there is a bit of headroom for us to use a lot more electricity in winter, uh, not only to run our air conditioners for heating, but also to charge our electric cars. Uh, a car can use more electricity than a house, and so it's very important that we. Uh, analyze this, this situation, not only for houses, but also for the cars. Um, but at the moment, we've got 
a fair bit of headroom if we just compare, you know, what what how much electricity has Victoria produced in the past and sent through the system? Uh, we've we've done more in the past than we've done lately, and certainly more than we do on your standard winter day. Um, but in the future, our peak electricity demand will not be on a summer day. It will be on a winter day because we'll be using elect- electricity for all these things in the winter time. And yet we need to have the the system set up to be able to manage that. You can do demand management um, on the system in the middle of winter, just like we are now learning to do in the summer. So those those practices and ideas and techniques will carry over. But it is. It, but if we actually do look at actual houses as they electif- electrify, we don't really see that they do use that much more electricity, which which seems amazing. But um, People forget, like um, with ducted gas heating, for example, and there's some really inefficient ducted gas heaters out there across Victoria, millions of them. They actually use a lot of electricity to blow the air around. So, okay, uh, give me that electricity, please. I'll put it in my air conditioner and I can get a a lot of heat coming out of it. So the actual uh, data we're seeing from homes is that when they do make the switch, they don't actually see their electricity use go up that much. Um, Yeah, we want to see heat pumps for hot water instead of gas. But there's still um, electric resistive hot water systems out there, and a heat pump will use a quarter of the electricity of those electric resistive systems. So, um, you know, there's still halogen downlights out there in some homes. Uh, you know, we still need to get them fully onto the LEDs, which use one tenth the electricity and the draft proofing and all those other things. Um, if you focus on those as well, you can do the transition from gas to electricity, and you're actually going to find that your electricity use hasn't gone up that much. Um, you know, the gas industry is a bit surprised by it, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> Tim, it's been great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. Thank you for having me. Tim Forsey is an engineer who advises households on improving home comfort and energy use. And Tim will be joining me at a public event, Bayside Energy Forum, on the 18th of March at the Brighton Town Hall from 10 a.m. until 2. And if you'd like to come along and have a look and a conversation around electrification of your home, please do so. We'll have all sorts of things on display and some people speaking as well, including myself and Tim. And Tim's Facebook page is My Efficient Electric Home. I'm just looking at it, 76 and a half thousand members. So definitely worth getting on there and having a look. And thank you very much, everyone, for joining us for this latest edition of Find Your Voice. about Zoe and her work in the Australian Parliament at zoedaniel.com.au and if you enjoyed this episode leave a review we'd love to hear from you this podcast is authorized by Zoe Daniel 677 Nepean Highway Brighton East Victoria 